This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. Thank you for being with us today. Thomas, that Delta variant continues to grow. You know what? I think we need to bring Dr. Hunter back and talk to us some more today. That's going to be great. And Steve, this got very relevant for me this week because I have family members in Missouri who got the Delta variant last weekend. And we'll tell details about that on the other side of it, but we're going through it right now. So there are so many more questions that we left untouched that we're going to bring Dr. Lee Hunter back. She's an infectious disease specialist and the director of internal medicine residency program at Methodist Health System. And we're going to be continuing our conversation that we started with her last week, listening to your questions and getting answers of why you're reluctant to get the vaccination. Steve? You know, Dr. Hunter, when I talk to young women, a couple of things come up. Steve, I'm pregnant. And I really don't want to take a vaccine now. It may hurt my baby. Or I'm of childbearing years, and I'm fearful to take the vaccine. It may make me sterile. It may also change the DNA and impact adversely my future baby. And so um, there was actually a study that was published uh, about two weeks ago in New England Journal, which looked at about 36,000 women who were pregnant and about 40% in the second trimester and equally split between the first and third with the rest of them. And it was really um, interesting because, um, uh, and it was about half and half Pfizer and Moderna, you know, slightly different it, it was interesting because so far it looks very safe in pregnancy. And I think as most people know, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology recommend that pregnant women get vaccinated. You know, people worried that um, there is a protein that's in the placenta and they worried that it was similar maybe to this spike protein that's in the virus. Well, it turns out that's not the case. And in fact, um, one of these studies looked at damage to the placenta in people that had COVID, the actual infection, and looked at placentas from people that were vaccinated. Interestingly, it was the placenta from the patients that had COVID that was damaged, not the placenta from the patients that had the vaccine. And so it looks like it's safe in pregnancy. And one of the benefits is you can transmit antibody to your baby so that the baby is then protected. And so I'm in total agreement with the American College of of OBGYN that, you know, that we should vaccinate pregnant women. And uh, they actually did a story here on one of uh, my faculty members who was vaccinated when she was pregnant, and she did great. So um, we recommend that. Now, the second part has to do with if you're not pregnant yet, but you know that you want to have a childbearing period in your life. So there are questions about fertility and and this stuff, you know, there there's been lots of information and, and misinformation out there. And so there were questions about um, fertility for some of the same reasons about this protein that I mentioned. As it turns out, so far that has not uh, come to fruition and has not been proven to be true. And 
if you look at the recommendations that are put out right now, most people would recommend if you know that you're going to become pregnant in the future, go ahead and get vaccinated now. And then you just, you know, don't even have to worry about it after that. So I would recommend both. Now, we always say talk with your obstetrician and make sure that they're in agreement with this. You know, I'm going to pivot just a little bit, Dr. Hunter. And as we look at this new variant that we're dealing with, the Delta variant, many physicians, infectious disease doctor tell me it has a much higher R0 factor, which means it can infect more people and it's more contagious. In fact, I heard that one person could infect five unvaccinated people. Does that make sense to you? It, it does. I mean, we know this is, is more infectious. You know, the UK one was more infectious than our original strain, and now this one is more infectious, you know, by about 50% over the, you know, alpha variant. And so, so it does make sense, and I think we're seeing that. And so if you look at the states that have low vaccination rates or even around here, maybe the cities that have low vaccination rates, we're seeing, you know, an increased rate of cases and hospitalizations. And so um, it absolutely, it, the best protection is for people to get vaccinated. And uh, we are really, um, you know, recommending that. And Methodist has, you know, done lots of uh, outreach. We have a vaccination clinic here. We have tried to, you know, go, go out to communities and churches and and so, uh, you know, everyone is trying to reach as many people as we can to hopefully prevent uh, severe disease and death because it is more contagious. And if you're unvaccinated, you're at serious risk for, you know, acquiring this infection. So, You know, Dr. Hunter, when I talk to our chief medical officers and physicians treating patients in our hospitals, many of the people, in fact, the majority of the people, in our hospitals in North Texas, have not been vaccinated. Does that surprise you? No, it doesn't. Um, and, you know, uh, we're, we're seeing this nationally. So the last numbers I looked at, 99% of the people that have severe disease and are in the hospital and then uh, of the deaths also are unvaccinated people. And so I think that tells us our vaccines are very effective. And, you know, um, th there is a small percentage of people that we're seeing that we call these breakthrough cases. But as you mentioned, they usually have mild disease. It is the rarest of rare occasion that they, they have anything more than that, and they usually do fine. And, you know, I think if you think about the original numbers that Pfizer and Moderna gave us were, you know, 94 to 95% effective at that time, well, that still leaves that 5%. And the numbers that we're seeing with, you know, breakthrough cases is less than that if you look at total population. So I think it does make sense. It just shows that vaccines work and they keep you out of the hospital and they keep you from being severely ill. And if you're unvaccinated, you're really at risk right now with this Delta variant. You know, Dr. Hunter, this is the first time that something with mRNA has been rolled out worldwide so quickly, and we really don't have a history uh, of this type of mass production throughout the world. That's true. You know, it's a relatively new vaccine technology being clinically used right now, but, but remember, we do have this 20 years of experience to look at 
Now, it, it is important to remember, messenger RNA does not enter the nucleus. DNA lives in the nucleus. And so, not to get technical, but, but the people that have concerns that it's going to change your DNA and that it's going to, you know, mar you for life, that's not possible with these vaccines. And, and messenger RNA is not very long-lived, and that's the other part of it. And so, and that was actually part of the problem that they had trying to get these vaccines off the ground initially because it, it's technically difficult sometimes. But the, just as reassurance, it will not affect your DNA. So from that standpoint, the people that are worried about that part of it, they should not worry about that part. This is Dr. Lee Hunter. She's an infectious disease specialist and much more at Methodist Health System. And she'll be back to answer more questions and concerns about the vaccine when we come back on the human side of healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Lee Hunter. She is an infectious disease specialist and is also the director of the Internal Medicine Residency Program at Methodist Health System. We've been listening to various concerns that people have of not wanting to get the COVID-19 vaccine, and we've asked Dr. Hunter to respond to these concerns. So here are Steve and Dr. Hunter with more questions and answers. You know, Dr. Hunter, you said these went through the internal processes. Usually you think the FDA takes years to get something finally approved. Was this process rushed? And what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, uh, for the people that think this was a rushed process, you know, they, they need to remember all of this messenger RNA work, it w- it's been done for the last 20 years. And so if you look back at like the last seven or eight years, they've been working on vaccines for rabies, for uh, malignancies, for CMV, and, you know, so other um, infectious diseases and other processes. So they took all of that work from the last 20 years and they were able to pull that. And then we were able to sequence the virus pretty quickly. And some of that came from, you know, work that had been done with SARS. And so because of that, we were able to pull everything together much more quickly. And then I already mentioned that having private industry involved and having lots of extra funding from the government, they were able to do things simultaneously that you would normally do sequentially. And so because of all of those things, they did get things out in an amazing time frame. Now, that doesn't mean that um, steps were skipped or that the process did not follow the usual safety measures and precautions. So you'd like to say that, okay, I want 10 years to see if this vaccine, you know, won't hurt anybody or cause any problems. Once again, usually vaccines, the issues show up pretty quickly But the other problem here is we're in the middle of a pandemic. We don't have 10 years to see this because too many lives will be lost. And so I think at some point you have to look back at our other vaccines and keep in mind the side effects that they have, keep in mind the frequency with which they occur, and the fact that these vaccines are remarkably safe and and incredibly effective. So I guess, I guess my plea as a physician is 
please let us prevent your COVID-19 and please get vaccinated because we just don't want to see, you know, people come to the hospital and become severely ill and maybe even die over something we could have prevented. You know, Dr. Hunter, we hear frequently, I'm not against vaccines, but I just want to wait. I need more time. I don't want to be first. Put me at the end of the line. Well, I guess we started our vaccination process back in December of 2020. And so 3.2 billion doses have been given in the world. And at least, you know, in, in, in this country, we're over 330 million now. So that's a lot of doses to try to see what's going to happen. Now, I understand um, the hesitancy of, and, and the wait and see thing. I do understand that. If we didn't have this Delta variant right now, that would probably make it a little less important and imperative that we try to view it differently. Right now, it's estimated that 50% of our um, cases right now are due to the Delta variant. It was just a few weeks ago, we were under eight, seven, eight 8%. So I think everybody can see where we're heading. And unfortunately, that just means people are gonna get, the unvaccinated are gonna get sick and end up in the hospital potentially. And so the wait and see becomes risky. So it's always a risk-benefit ratio, and you've got to always weigh what are the risks and what are the benefits. And at this point, the benefits are outweighing the risk of getting vaccinated because we've got, uh, we've got a lot of disease out there that's potentially going to get worse because we have a third of our population unvaccinated. You know, Dr. Hunter, some of the people are skeptical. They look at the profits of big drug manufacturers and many are saying this vaccine has a real profit motive behind it. For example, even heard this week about Pfizer wanting a third dose. Is that pushed by a profit motive? Well, you know, th- this goes back to the mistrust of the, you know, CDC, FDA, and, and those institutions that a lot of us, you know, hold dear and, and look to. And that trust gets questioned whenever politics or financial pressures are are put upon those institutions. And so I I think we have to have faith that these career scientists that are charged with manning the FDA and the CDC will be honest and will not alter data and will not make decisions based on financial reasons or political reasons. And so I actually understand that mistrust, and I think that there were some messaging problems probably during the pandemic at times, but I think we've got to get back on track and recognize that those two things were put in place to protect us, and we've got to trust that that's going to happen. The misinformation that's out there You know, I don't know about you, but I've always thought that usually if you read something, you know, whether it's on the Internet or in the paper or wherever, you would like to be able to think that it's true. And unfortunately, we found, especially during this pandemic, there's lots of information that's out there that may not be true. And so, you know, there are things about microchips being implanted with this uh, injection and there are things about it making you magnetic and all sorts of stuff like that. And so I think we have to just look at each of these and try to dispel them with with science. And so, you know, 
There is no metal in this vaccine. You cannot become magnetic. Uh, it's impossible to put a microchip in this biological um, solution that's being injected. And so, you know, I think we try to have to we have to try to dispel this stuff. And from the you know financial part of this, um, drug companies uh, make a lot of money, but this vaccine, by all measures, is safe and effective and appears to be saving lives. And so I think we've just got to try to stick with the science and, and hope that none of the other stuff is, is playing a role. As people are talking amongst themselves, I think if we could boil this down to what they hear and they might know somebody who knows somebody. For example, I called a friend the other day to wish them happy birthday. The topic of the vaccine came up out of left field, out of nowhere. And this person's sister had allergic reactions right after the inoculation. She's on 14 different medications. She's been in and out of the hospital. Her hair is falling out and nothing is working. So my friend, who I called to wish happy birthday, said, oh, heck no, I'm not getting vaccinated. The other thing I hear if we wanted to just kind of lump this in is, is affecting the heart, as we talked about earlier, palpitations, the myocarditis, et cetera. What about the people who are saying, you know, until I know that I'm not going to be one of those, that I'm going to wait? So I totally understand that. And as I mentioned, um, anytime something happens to you personally, it's personal and and you feel it a lot more than looking at looking through the glasses of a public health person now when you're trying to make decisions for a community and for a country you've got to weigh the public health and so you determine that what's an acceptable number of side effects um, that you can tolerate in order to save you know, hundreds and thousands and even millions of lives. What, what is that? But when you're that person whose loved one went through that, I completely understand that feeling. However, it's once again, you got to back up and go, okay, what's my risk of catching COVID being unvaccinated versus what's my risk of having one of these very rare side effects? And you know, I, I think that's what you got to do. And like many things in life, you put down the pros and you put down the cons. And I think the pro vaccine is going to probably win. Now, it becomes difficult when it becomes an emotional decision. And it's hard to not be emotional when you have the loved one that experienced all that. So that's sort of a long, complicated answer of saying you just have to weigh the risk and the benefit and figure out what's right for you. You know, Dr. Hunter, I've asked you a lot of questions, and if you uh, could wave a magic wand, what would you say to our listeners related to vaccinations and people that are hesitant to be vaccinated? What I would really wish is that I could address, you know, the fears of these people that are hesitant and try to give them data to show them that it's safe and that it's effective and that it's in their best interest, you know, to go ahead and get vaccinated. Now, you know, people that have concerns, like specific concerns, I would want to be able to answer their questions 
and hopefully reassure them that our healthcare system and, and, and the physicians and other staff that are going to be taking care of them if they get sick, our main concern is that they don't get sick, and we want to figure out how to make that possible. And this can be prevented, and that's why we really want to try to help them get access to vaccines. Thank you, Dr. Lee Hunter, Methodist Health System. We appreciate you taking these questions and concerns head on. There's another hot topic in medicine right now. It's a new medication coming out for Alzheimer's. Dr. Stephen Hurlbut next on the Human Side of Healthcare. Welcome back to the Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. And welcome back to the Human Side of Healthcare. We're going to talk about a subject today dealing with Alzheimer's and dementia. It impacts all of us. There are over 6 million people suffering from Alzheimer's in the United States, and a case is diagnosed every 65 seconds. We think this is an important topic. And Thomas, why don't you introduce our guests? We're honored to have Dr. Stephen Hurlbut. He's a neurologist at Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Hearst Euless Bedford and is with the Practice Neurology Specialists of North Texas. Dr. Hurlbut, welcome to the Human Side of Healthcare. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You know, one thing I think to kind of set the stage to help our listeners, can you explain to them the difference between Alzheimer's disease and dementia? Sure. That's a common question. Uh, Dementia is a more general term. Dementia means that a person has memory problems that has reached a place that it is starting to affect some part of their life. It may be that they've had to change how they work. They've had to change their hobbies. They can't drive anymore. There's something that's changed. It's more than just being absent-minded. That uh, is what dementia means. Alzheimer's is a cause for dementia. Alzheimer's is a disease of the brain where the brain cells tangle and these plaques form in the brain. Um, And so like the correct diagnosis, if you think a person has Alzheimer's, is you say the person has Alzheimer's type dementia. Uh, There's a lot of things that can cause dementia. People that have memory loss due to strokes, we call that vascular dementia. So dementia, the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's is that dementia means memory loss that's affected some part of your life. Alzheimer's is a cause, is one of the causes for dementia. Thanks for that explanation, and that will help our listeners as I ask this next question. Over the past 15 to 16 months, we've been dealing with COVID-19. People have had anxiety, behavioral health issues. It's so important that we deal with that but not confuse it with Alzheimer's. They really are two different things. It has been a difficult last couple of years, and anxiety and depression have affected a lot of us, um, both professionally and personally, and they can cause some symptoms that make us worry that we're developing dementia or Alzheimer's. Uh, People that are dealing with anxiety or depression will often have memory problems, they'll have trouble focusing, and if you have someone you love that has been diagnosed with dementia, that has uh, been diagnosed with, say, with Alzheimer's, and you see that in someone you love, and then you're starting to feel some of these symptoms yourself, it's easy to make that 
mental leap that, uh-oh, this is what's happening to me. But it really is two different things. And if, if what is going on is something uh, related to stress, something related to some underlying depression or anxiety, you would treat that completely differently than you would treat if there was actually an underlying illness of the brain causing, causing memory problems. And it's easy to get them confused early on. But there are signs. There are things you can ask. There's questions the doctors can ask. And there's things that people can ask themselves to try to help determine if what they're dealing with is more of a mental health issue or more of of an Alzheimer's or dementia-type process. You know, sometimes I go, where did I put my car key? So I drive off and say, did I close the garage door? What are some things that you may consider normal, but what are red flags that you may have something much more serious? The examples you gave are a lot of times the things that when people come to see me that they talk about. And I always feel like that's one of my first jobs as the person's doctor is trying to determine if what they're experiencing is just the normal forgetfulness that people do. They've done these studies where supposedly the normal person will forget things 14 times a day, like where's my coffee cup, stuff like that. Just simple things, but if you are starting to get concerned about your memory, even those little things like you know losing your keys, can feel like an indictment. You know, it just suddenly everything just kind of is magnified. The red flags that I listen for when people are talking to me, it's it's in the story of of their symptoms, and it it almost always centers around how they've had to change their life because of the memory. So um, perhaps they retired, and I always ask, you know, why are you? Why did you retire? Maybe it was just time to retire. But I listen, and sometimes the reason they've had to retire or change their job is because the memory just prevented them from being able to function in that role anymore. They can no longer teach the Sunday school class. They they can go to church, but they can't teach anymore. They just seem to not be able to do that at the house. They no longer are the ones paying the bills. Um, there's just it, there's been a measurable change in their life. Not that they have to write notes or that they have to um, um, you know just be a little bit more thoughtful about things. But there's been kind of a tangible change in their activity, directly related to their memory not being as good. When I hear that, that's a red flag to me um, that something has changed. The other red flag, and this is a little bit harder is that sometimes patients just are not aware, and that is one of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's, is that some of these changes that have happened are noticed by the people that love the person, but the person themselves just can't see it. If the person seems to be blind to the memory changes that they're experiencing, that's a worrisome sign, because that is one of the things that uh, people with a progressive dementia like Alzheimer's often experience. So it's really kind of in the story uh, that red flags come out. You know, if someone is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, what are generally some of the causes associated with that diagnosis? Boy, this is the million-dollar question. We really don't have a great answer yet to give people why why me. You know, why is this happening to me? Um, there's a lot of theories and there is some, there are some things we know. There is some genetic predisposition, though genetics are not, are clearly not the whole answer. Family history, it is hard to find a family in the United States that doesn't have someone they're related to that hasn't been diagnosed with some form of dementia. So family history is not real helpful. 
we know that certain exposures, certain chemicals, most of which are gone you know, from the market now, but we know things such as exposure to heavy metals like lead, other such things could damage the brain and lead to early dementia. A lot of herbicides that were used many years ago uh, also could cause neurodegenerative conditions. But most of those are off the market now. Um, perhaps we're lacking something either in our diet. There's just, we just don't really know yet. And it's hard for us to give people an honest answer of what it is. The leading theories is that it is not one thing, that it is a combination. You may have a genetic predisposition plus an exposure to something at some point in your life. Maybe the timing of the exposure matters. That happens young versus old. We know people with multiple concussions are more likely to have um, a dementia-type process when they get older. So it's a combination of things, and we just don't have a great answer yet for people. You know, you mentioned in your answer a couple of things I want to explore a little bit. Even though generally you think of dementia and Alzheimer's as people age, it can really come at any age, can't it? It really can. It is much more common as we get older. Uh, that seems to be the single biggest risk factor for de- developing some form of dementia is the older you get, the higher the odds are you, that you'll be diagnosed with Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia. But it can happen at any age. Uh, I have patients in their 40s who you know, we have diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And if you have dementia related to strokes, dementia related to head injuries, uh, some of the uh, post-traumatic memory loss issues, uh, that could happen at any age. And, and those patients have dementia. They have memory loss that is, is affecting their life. So it is something that could happen to any of us at any age. I know there are different therapies for Alzheimer's in the treatment and even a new medication that's come out. As you look at the current treatment and to the horizon, what do you see? So the new medicine is certainly worth talking about. The um, Educanumab is the name of it. Um, this is something we've been waiting on to see if the FDA would approve for quite some time, and they did finally approve it. It is the first new medicine that the FDA has approved in a long time. Um, I think the last one that was approved was one uh, called Exelon, and that was 14, 15 years ago. So it's been a very long time. The FDA has been under a lot of pressure to try to approve a new medicine, and we just haven't had one. This one is interesting. It targets a protein that gets built up in the brain in people with Alzheimer's called beta amyloid. I think our listeners will probably know there's been a lot of controversy about this drug. Um, The controversy centers on how effective is it really uh, the improvements that were seen in the studies were um, modest as far as its ability to improve memory functioning and prevent disability. It, it, was, it was pretty modest, and it is going to be very expensive. It's an infusion, an IV, that the person gets once a month. But it is a new drug that appears to be relatively safe, and so we're, we're anxious to kind of see if it actually uh, will make any difference. It was studied in people with really early onset of Alzheimer's, so it probably is not going to be something that is used in people with, who are further down the road uh, with Alzheimer's and, and the memory loss. Right now, unfortunately, medicine is just really not the answer. Uh, we, we have medicines. Uh, this new one, Educanumab, before this, we had one. we have one called Aricept. 
which is a once-a-day pill, one called Namenda, which is a twice-a-day pill, and one called Exelon, which is a patch. But all those came out in the um, late 1990s or early 2000s. Uh, and all of them, what they do is they seem to slow the progression of the, of the illness. So medicines alone are not the answer for the treatment of Alzheimer's because we just don't have the right medicine yet. We're talking with Dr. Stephen Hurlbut, who is a neurologist at Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Hearst, Euless Bedford, and he's also with Neurology Specialists of North Texas Practice. If you've ever wanted some great and surprising tips on how to prevent Alzheimer's, stick around for our next segment. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're continuing our fascinating conversation with Dr. Stephen Hurlbut, who is a neurologist at Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital. And if you missed our last segment, it is on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare. You heard that there are not great medical treatments for Alzheimer's. So prevention becomes the focus. So Dr. Hurlbut, let's just take our own example here. I'm 61. Steve's a little bit older. What can I'm, I'm, Yeah, I'm older. That's for sure. He's, he's older. <laughs> he's a little older. But, you know, we still know each other's names. I mean, what can we do to make sure, even at our ages, that if anything was in the space, what can we do to prevent? Sure. So, you know, we, we touched on briefly about the medicines, but the medicines, we don't spend much time talking about the medicines because the medicines are not the answer. We don't have the right medicine yet. So we spend almost all our time talking about this. You know, what are things we can do to try to maintain our memory, prevent dementia? It kind of falls in this categories that are kind of common sense, but that really seem to matter, especially as we get older and we're trying to preserve our brain function. So these are the things we always focus on. The first one is being active physically. This is something that people are tired of hearing from their doctors, but uh, being active physically really seems to matter for brain function. And we've known for years that you know, our hearts and lungs and muscles needed us to keep moving, but apparently it's important for brain function and uh, it really seems to matter. And it's interesting that it doesn't require a lot of effort. So it's not like you have to train for marathons to get any benefit. They kind of have an, an acronym. It's not how fast or how far, it's how frequent you exercise. And so walking, is, if a person's able to walk, that's usually what you know, we focus on. And so it doesn't seem to matter so much how fast you walk or how far you walk. It's how frequently you walk. It's the people who do something every day that gets the blood pumping through the brain. Whatever that may be, it really seems to make a difference long term. So being active physically, and the second thing is being active socially, and that's defined as on a regular basis trying to be around people that you like. The idea is that you're around people in a situation where you might laugh, you could be more spontaneous. Um, so work, usually a little stressful. This is focusing on more around being around people in non-stressful situations. So it could be family, friends, church, a social group just places where you can be around people in a comfortable situation. And 
Uh, hermits just don't seem to do well uh, cognitively as they get older. So try and be active socially. And then the, the last thing is trying to be healthy, and which is a very broad term. But it does appear that the people who overall take better care of themselves seem to do better in the long run cognitively, brain function-wise. So if you have other health issues, manage them. Um, it seems that for the brain to work right, it needs every other part of your body to work right. So if you know you know, that you have high blood pressure and you're reluctant to take the medicine, do what you have to do to get your blood pressure down. If you have diabetes, if you have COPD, um, any other kind of body issue, try to manage it and see how much of it you can manage uh, by living a healthier life so you're not having to take more medicine. But if you need medicine to manage your sugar, then you take it because uh, well-controlled sugar seems to man it, uh, make a difference in the long run and how the brain works. We don't know what to tell people about diet. Um, the Mediterranean diet continues to seem to be the diet that shows the most long-term benefit for brain health. And the Mediterranean diet is, you know, it's, it's kind of a diet of moderation. There is, I think, something to be said about all of us consuming less processed sugar. I think um, sugar does appear to be a problem. And so um, less sugar does matter. And making sure you get you know, the right nutrients. The people are selling us vitamins left and right. They're supposed to promote brain health. Almost all of them are safe, so there's very little risk. I don't know how much benefit they provide people. It's hard to prove. Um, but those things, trying to be active physically, active socially, and just trying to lead as healthy a life as we can, which uh, we should all be doing anyway, those things matter. And they matter if we're playing the long game, trying to be healthy so that our brains are working good and well into our 80s, 90s. Um, those things really seem to matter. You know, that you touched on one that I hadn't thought of, and that is the social aspect. Being active socially might be the most important of the three. Um, it's hard to prove. You know, these are things that are hard to study. But people who are active socially, number one, I think they're happier. And I, I think that, again, is hard to study. But I think for most of us, most people are social, and being around people seems to make a difference. You know, we touched on earlier about, you know, how the pandemic affected people. I, a lot of my patients with dementia that were in assisted living or places where their lives just got cut off from the rest of the world because the family couldn't visit, you know, no one, they did so poorly. And um, their dementia progressed rapidly. Many of them did pass away, and they didn't die from having COVID. They died because of the pandemic and the results of us shutting down you know, our society for, for that length of time because they just, I, I'm just convinced they just lost, they lost that social contact. So it's, it's hard to explain. I just, I think we're wired to need to be around people. And it seems to be important that it's in a comfortable, hopefully loving type situation that those are the people who seem to do best. What about brain stimulating puzzles, crosswords, that kind of thing? Do they help? It helps. Uh, anything kind of stimulating the brain, any, any of those things, crosswords, um, Sudoku, uh, there's a lot of games you can, you know, uh, you can buy for your phone, Lumosity. Um, there's, there's other ones that are like brain games that you can do, ha have been shown to be helpful. 
they they certainly improve um, mental agility, you know, as far as being able to do things quickly, um, and the repetition is helpful. We're not sure if that translates into long-term benefit, but it seems to help in the short term. But, you know, kind of going back to the social question you asked, you know, what they're saying now is crossword, doing crosswords are good, playing dominoes with friends is better. And the idea isn't anything special about dominoes. <laughs> it's just... You know, it's a game where you got to think, you got to, you know, you got to use your brain to play the game, but you're with people. And so reading is another one. You know, reading is really helpful. It stimulates the brain. But if all you do all day is just read and you don't talk to people, you're not interacting, you don't leave your, your home or apartment, that probably isn't good. So if you love to read, that's good, but trying to join a book club or something where, you know, you get to read, but then you also have some interaction is uh, that's important. You know, Steve, we've been talking here about that around half, 45, 50 percent of Texans that have not received the vaccine. Boy, if you needed a little um, elbow in the ribs, let's say. I think you just heard it because this social factor that he's talking about, listen, he elevated that to the number one preventive issue. Oh, absolutely. No question about it. And, you know, 50% of Texans are still unvaccinated. All we have to do is look to assist the state, Missouri. They've got the Delta variant right now, and it is rampaging. The social aspect is so important. This is a big tipper, I think, for somebody contemplating the vaccination to just think about what you just heard about the social aspect that was taken away from us for a year. And that was everybody on the planet. And now we have an opportunity to comfortably, statistically get that back. That's a big deal. It is a big deal. Yes. Dr. Stephen Hurlbut from Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital, thank you so much for being with us with those great comments. Steve? You know, Thomas, what a great show. And I learned so much about Alzheimer's and dementia that I just didn't know. You know, it, it, when it impacts your family, it's enormous, just like Dr. Hurlbut said. And talking about enormous, we have something enormous in our space that I still don't think most people are giving the severity of the real situation. And that is, of course, the Delta variant. Yeah, you know, I'm so glad people tuned in for the show today. And for the people that aren't vaccinated, please give it serious consideration. Do it for yourself and for your loved ones. Thank you for tuning in to the human side of healthcare today, and we hope you'll join us next week.